Uh, my name is Chris Condon. I'm a Federal Reserve reporter at Bloomberg News, and it is my pleasure to uh, be the moderator of this first panel. Uh, it strikes me that this whole event today is something of a miniature shadow framework review. Uh, and this panel, I hope, will be a good start to that. Um, our theme is targets and mandates, which is uh, probably even vaguer than the dual mandate, and so gives our panelists quite a lot of discretion. Um, but seriously, we have some important uh, concepts to take on. Um, it seems that central banks are still fresh from their greatest triumph of conquering the high inflation of the late 20th century, but now are already on the verge of taking on a new emergency. Um, there are, of course, political pressures on central banks, uh, perhaps larger than they have been in 40 years. Um, but perhaps even more important, central banks are facing down a worry that in the next economic downturn, their policies will not be effective. Um, and so this panel will seek to take up some of these questions. Um, we're going to look at uh, uh, the uh, framework review that's ongoing. Our panelists will ask whether these, uh, the options are perhaps too ambitious. Um, should lawmakers be perhaps simplifying the goals given to the Federal Reserve? Should policymakers be thinking about giving up discretion for the sake of clarity and political shelter? On the other hand, should the Federal Reserve be even more ambitious? Will it be bold enough in facing what is potentially an existential crisis over its effectiveness and credibility? Starting at your far right, Eric Sims is the Michael P. Grace II Collegiate Chair and Professor of Economics at the University of Notre Dame. He's also a research associate at the Federal Reserve Bank of Cleveland, and he focuses on business cycles, monetary, and fiscal policies. Carol Binder is Assistant Professor of Economics at Haverford College. She's the Associate Editor of the Journal of Money, Credit, and Banking, and she focuses on expectations, perceptions, inflation, monetary policy, and central bank communication. Jeff Lacker is a distinguished professor of economics at Virginia Commonwealth University in Richmond, and as you all know, is the former president of the Federal Reserve Bank of Richmond, making him the only former policymaker on our panel. And uh, last but certainly not least, Peter Ireland is the Murray and Monty Professor of Economics at Boston College and also a member of the Shadow Open Market Committee. So Peter, could I ask you to kick it off, please? Thanks, Chris. It's an honor to be on this panel with great researchers and great teachers, too. Each of our institutions has a strong commitment to undergraduate education. I'm really proud of that at BC, and I'm sure my panelists will say the same about their institutions, too. Successful institutional arrangements for effective monetary policymaking somehow have to manage the tension that can arise between central bank independence on the one hand and accountability on the other. Because many monetary policy actions that yield short-run benefits also impose even larger long-run costs, 
it can be advantageous to give the central bank a certain degree of independence, insulating monetary policymakers from short-run political and economic pressures, helping them remain focused firmly on the long run. At the same time, though, some institutional mechanism must be in place to ensure that uh, the central bank's objectives remain aligned with those of societies as a whole. Here in this first session on mandates and targets for monetary policy, I'd like to propose that by giving the Federal Reserve a new single mandate for stabilizing inflation around the central bank's own self-declared 2% long-run target, the US Congress can achieve both of these things at once, bolstering the Fed's independence and enhancing its accountability. In particular, a single mandate for inflation targeting would help preserve de jure, the de facto independence that the Fed Reserve gained during the 1980s, but only after the US economy passed through a damaging phase of high and volatile inflation during the 1970s. Absent a streamlined mandate, the Fed Reserve's independence already under some attack, is likely to erode still further as collective memory of what really happened during the 1970s continues to fade. At the same time, a single mandate for inflation targeting would also make the Fed more accountable by giving the central bank a specific quantitative objective that it can and should be able to achieve. But what are the specific arguments to support these claims. Let's turn to those next, starting with the case for central bank independence. Even though US Congress has already given to the Fed Reserve a number of distinctive institutional features like 14-year terms for Fed Reserve governors and a decentralized structure of the system as a whole, consisting of the board here in Washington, but then the 12 reserve banks scattered throughout the country, all of which, in principle at least, ought to help monetary policymakers take the long-run view. It's important to recognize that much of post-World War II US monetary history suggests that by themselves, these institutional features are insufficient, and that the biggest obstacle to successful monetary policy making over this period has not been a lack of accountability, but instead insufficient Fed Reserve independence. The basic problem is highlighted most vividly by an example presented by Finn Kidlin and Ed Prescott in a 1977 article titled Rules Rather Than Discretion, The Inconsistency of Optimal Plans. In Kidlin and Prescott's example, a discretionary central banker, meaning one who makes optimal decisions meeting by meeting in light of shifting economic circumstances, is inevitably tempted to exploit an expectation of Phillips curve, trying to create surprise inflation to lower the rate of unemployment. The problem arises because households and firms recognize that the central bank faces this temptation and rationally anticipate that under discretion, the central bank will inevitably succumb to it. So they build the effects of expected inflation directly into their price and wage setting decisions. In equilibrium, therefore, unemployment is no lower than it would otherwise be, and yet the rate of inflation is also suboptimally high. 
in Caitlin and Prescott's example, a committed central banker by contrast, meaning one who enjoys enough independence to be able to announce and adhere to an intermediate term monetary policy strategy fixed in advance of the realization of current economic conditions, can use that commitment to resist the temptation to inflate. So ironically, in Kidlin and Prescott's example, the committed central banker attempts to do less, but achieves more, creating and maintaining an environment of nominal stability within which the capitalist system can respond most efficiently to the non-monetary shocks that hit the economy, allowing the unemployment rate to fluctuate as it otherwise would. Now, Kidman and Prescott's example is based on a highly stylized macroeconomic model that necessarily abstracts away from a myriad of complications that surely have been important in the real world. So I wouldn't want to argue that that, that example teaches us everything we need to know about everything that ever went wrong with Fed Reserve policy. That said, however, I would argue that the Kidlin-Prescott example does teach us at least one important lesson about at least one important thing that did go wrong in the 1970s, and that in addition, this is a lesson well worth remembering today. The lesson is the one that says that the presence of a statistical Phillips curve relationship in the data between inflation and unemployment does not imply that the Fed Reserve has access to any kind of trade-off between those two variables that it can actively exploit in implementing monetary policy. In fact, when the Fed Reserve tried to exploit the Phillips curve in the 1970s, it did not succeed at buying lower rates of unemployment in exchange for higher rates of inflation. Instead, it merely contributed to an overall economic environment characterized by the worst of both worlds, high and volatile inflation and unemployment. And the fact that, in Kidlin and Prescott's example, the committed and discretionary central bankers share the same preferences with one another and with society as a whole, again, underscores the importance of central bank independence in securing favorable monetary and economic outcomes. Now, this same basic theme highlighting the role of insufficient Fed Reserve independence as a driving force behind the great inflation of the 1970s also emerges from volume two of Alan Meltzer's monumental History of the Fed Reserve System. There, Meltzer teaches us that by the mid to late 1970s, Fed Reserve officials knew that they could bring the inflation of the day to a halt whenever they wanted, simply by applying the tried and true method, exercising monetary restraint. The economic solution to the problem of inflation was known. Instead, the problem was purely political. There was absolutely no political support in the mid to late 1970s for applying the economic cure. In fact, to the contrary, all of the political pressures of the day were directed towards keeping the whole thing going. So Meltzer's historical account, like Kidlin and Prescott's theoretical example, shift our perspective on Fed Reserve accountability today almost 180 degrees by reminding us that in the 1970s, the problem was not that 
the Fed Reserve was unaccountable to the political system. In fact, just the opposite. Fed Reserve officials and their policies were too responsive to the political trends of the time. Now, finally, in August 1979, recognizing that inflation had become a political as well as an economic problem, President Carter appointed Paul Volcker, a known inflation fighter, to be the new chair of the Federal Reserve System. And after a brief experiment, failed and politically motivated with credit controls, President Carter and then President Reagan, for the most part, left Volcker alone to apply the economic cure, restraining the growth rate of money and bringing inflation back under control. And for the most part, President Reagan's successors here in Washington, both at the White House and in Congress, followed suit during the Greenspan years, avoiding specific comment on and criticism of monetary policy actions taken by the Greenspan Fed to preserve the newly restored environment of nominal stability. And the fact that low inflation was achieved and maintained under Volcker and Greenspan in the presence of lower, not higher, rates of unemployment, again, speaks to the importance of the distinction highlighted by Kidlin and Prescott's model between a statistical Phillips curve and any sort of trade-off that the Federal Reserve may face when conducting monetary policy. Now, very much to their credit, it seems to me, Volcker and Greenspan's successors at the Fed, Chairs Bernanke, Yellen, and now Powell, have taken a number of concrete steps in recent years to repay the American political system for the enhanced de facto independence that they've enjoyed by taking a number of concrete steps that have worked to make Fed Reserve policymaking more transparent. Vice Chair Clarida referred to many of those steps in his talk just a few minutes ago. Press releases after FOMC meetings, the SEPs, press conferences, at first after every other meeting, now under Chair Powell, under after every meeting. But of all of those steps towards greater transparency taken recently, it strikes me that by far and away the most important came in January 2012 when the FOMC released the first of its now annual statements on monetary policy objectives and strategies. In fact, that statement on longer-run policy goals and strategies cannot be overstated, because with it, the FOMC acknowledged publicly for the very first time the key role that the Federal Reserve plays as our nation's central bank in controlling the aggregate nominal price level or inflation as its rate of change. And not only that, with the statement, the FOMC identified a specific numerical target, 2% for long-run inflation. And not only that, with the statement, the FOMC identified the specific measure of inflation that committee members have used since then to gauge their own progress towards achieving that long-run goal. My point is this. With the statement on longer-run policy goals and strategies, the FOMC could not have been more explicit about the criteria according to which it expects and desires to be held accountable. So long as inflation, as measured by year-over-year percentage changes in the price index for personal consumption expenditures, comes in at or around 2%, the Fed should be congratulated for a job well done. 
If, on the other hand, inflation by that same measure deviates from the 2% target persistently in either direction, the U.S. Congress should call upon the Federal Reserve Chair on behalf of the American people to explain why. So it strikes me that presently, the focus should very much shift back to the U.S. Congress. Members of U.S. Congress need to give up the dream of an of an exploitable Phillips curve trade-off left over from the 1960s and 1970s and respect the lessons taught by monetary theory, but particularly economic history in the decades since then. They can do this by giving the Fed Reserve a new single streamlined mandate to target inflation around its own self-declared 2% target. Doing so would, as I said, bolster the Fed's independence at a time when it's under renewed attack and make the Fed more accountable by giving the central bank a specific quantitative target that it can and should be able to achieve. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me to, to appear here and participate in the 14th Annual Monetary uh, Conference here at Cato. Let me find my device. Let me use my device. Um, so the Fed is conducting a review, as you've heard, about its monetary policy uh, framework. Uh, the current framework is enshrined in a document with the title uh, listed there, and it's been recited a couple of times so far. First approved in January 2012, as you've heard, and it reviewed annually since then. In 2011, when the committee was drafting the document, it was commonly referred to as the consensus statement. And out of force of habit, I'm going to keep doing that. The consensus statement translated the Fed's legislative mandate of 1977 into an articulated strategy framework, although it took 35 years to get there. It formally announced an inflation target, as you've heard, of 2%, but it stated that it would be inappropriate to establish a fixed goal for the unemployment rate. It took a long time to achieve this. I'm going to review the process and give a close reading to a couple of, to a key passage of uh, the consensus statement and some aspects of how it was introduced uh, with an eye towards what lessons might usefully be gleaned uh, for the current policy review. Just to foreshadow, Two critical factors drove resistance to adopting the consensus statement. One, and uh, more broadly, uh, adopting an inflation target. One was the concern about preserving discretion, preserving optionality, as we sometimes said. Um, the other is the employment mandate, concern uh, that an inflation target would inevitably diminish the importance the committee placed on the employment mandate, either consciously or subconsciously, and also fear of political pushback and the appearance of neglecting unemployment mandate. Uh, Greenspan organized discussions of inflation targeting, um, and he did so when uh, Republicans uh, were contemplating introducing or had introduced legislation giving the Fed a single uh, price stability mandate. 1997, 1996 was a noteworthy discussion. In that discussion, perhaps surprisingly to many of the participants, a broad working consensus emerged 
to hold the line at in, on inflation at 3% where it currently was, not letting it rise any further, and working to bring the, the inflation rate down to a 2% goal. Greenspan, a bit taken aback, warned the committee about uh, letting that 2% uh, number get out of the committee. Uh, he was worried about the political blowback. Bernanke came to the chairmanship on record, having uh, been a strong advocate of inflation targeting for the Fed. He'd co-authored a book on the subject in 1999, co-authored a Wall Street Journal op-ed piece. A year later, other articles and speeches advocated an inflation target. Uh, shortly after he came in, in early 2006, he formed a subcommittee on communications, chaired by Don Cohn, uh, with Gary Stern and Janet Yellen as members. Uh, they pursued a broad array of transparency initiatives, but key among them, I think the most consequential was inflation targeting, recognized as the most important, but also recognized as likely to be the, the most difficult for the committee. In October 2006 and then in March 2007, the committee had its first full-on discussions of inflation targeting. Strong support emerged. There were eight uh, participants out of, I think, 17 at the time who were in favor of adopting an inflation target. But even among those who did favor an inflation target, uh, there was a desire to, to go slow, um, take some time um, before adopting that. So the idea of a, adopting and announcing an inflation target was set aside for a time. And instead, the focus was placed on extending economic projections. Uh, these were submitted by committee members, um, compiled, published in an anonymized form in the monetary policy report twice a year to Congress. And they added a third year to the forecast. So you forecast, you submit a forecast for the current year, the next year, and the next year after that. The idea being that um, that's a time period in which shocks should have settled out. And what people reported as their forecast for inflation three years out ought to be what they think the optimal inflation rate uh, would be. And the hope was, miraculously, everyone would agree on forecasting the same number. And there'd be sort of a backdoor inflation target adoption uh, by that mechanism. Uh, that uh, hope was dashed uh, when the committee persistently submitted their own personal preferences for inflation target as the third year uh, forecast. In January 2009, uh, deflation emerged as a concern um, and motivated Bernanke to revive the idea of inflation targeting. In addition, there was a recognition that the dramatic expansion of the balance sheet underway would give could potentially give rise to fears of inflation as well. Uh, so there, there was a recognition that um, a public anchor, a public statement about the Fed's intentions about inflation would be useful. Bernanke consulted with the new administration. Um, they were receptive, but lukewarm, unwilling to sacrifice any of the new administration's political capital uh, so early in their term. Uh, he consulted with Barney Frank, the incoming Democratic chair of the House Financial Services Committee, who said he wouldn't support it. Inflation targeting was put back on the shelf. In mid-2010, in the run-up of QE2, inflation targeting was revived again. Uh, growth was weakening, inflation was sagging. Uh, there was uh, fear of a Japanese-style deflationary regime that might emerge. Asset purchase program began to be discussed uh, and came about, it was adopted in November of 2010, QE2. In a run-up to that, Bernanke and many others wanted a framework uh, to create some structure around a new asset purchase program instead of just rolling it out as another shock and awe program. Uh, the FOMC uh, had a, devoted a special uh, discussion to that uh, and was sharply divided. Some on the FOMC actually wanted a, a specific uh, numerical target for unemployment as well. 
So QE2 was adopted without an inflation target framework. After the disappointment of QE2 without uh, an inflation target, Philadelphia Fed President Charlie Plosser approached Bernanke and offered to work on it. Uh, ben says, go give it a try. Uh, Plosser put together a, a group, a handful of uh, Reserve Bank presidents drawn from across the spectrum on this issue. Uh, they worked on a standalone statement. Previous efforts had envisioned announcing it either in the monetary policy report to Congress or via the um, post-meeting statement. Um, they uh, worked on drafts, iterated, and ob obtained a draft consensus statement, as they began to call it, uh, that uh, garnered the support of all 12 Reserve Bank presidents. Plosser brought that to, to Bernanke. Meanwhile, in August 2011, at a very contentious meeting, uh, there was uh, a shift in the forward guidance uh, that the Fed um, <coughs> provided in its post-meaning statement to so-called calendar-based. At that time, it, interest rates would be at low at least uh, until mid-2013, and they'd vary the date. But that was viewed as somewhat unsatisfactory, and a broader discussion of forward guidance emerged. One thing put on the table uh, that garnered some interest was a uh, proposal of Janet Yellen's of uh, threshold forward guidance. This would be in the form of the committee anticipates that exceptionally low levels of the federal funds rate are likely to be warranted at least as long as the unemployment rate exceeds. She had 7.5%, but you can fill in the number. It ended up being 6.5% when the committee adopted that form of guidance in December 2012. It was widely recognized at the time, though, I believe, that this would be problematic without an inflation target. The idea that the first number ever uttered in the post-meeting statement would be a target-like variable for the unemployment rate without the committee ever having spoken about its intentions about inflation just seemed like an upside-down world and, and potentially very confusing. Um, so uh, threshold guidance was put aside for a little while. But that provided a little bit of impetus, I believe, to um, the effort of Plosser um, to, to uh, introduce an inflation target in a consensus statement. Uh, November, there was a meeting with a special topic, uh, broad discussion of inflation targeting uh, frameworks, supported, solidified, I think because of Plosser's efforts and this threshold guidance. Bernanke uh, refers uh, the matter to Yellen's now. Now Yellen is vice chair of the Board of Governors. She's taken over helm of the Subcommittee on Communication and asks to use the Plosser draft as a starting point. In November and early December, uh, there are a host of bilateral conversations with members of the committee um, negotiating the particulars of language and objections and the like. In December, there's sort of a dress rehearsal, uh, which a, a consensus statement is discussed and uh, we, they all agree that yes, at, at, in January we can formally adopt this, and um, in January they did so. The striking feature of the way in which the consensus statement was presented to the committee and rolled out to the public is that it was portrayed as completely consistent with the way the FOMC had been conducting monetary policy all along. Bernanke says at the January meeting, in my view, this statement does not reflect and should not be represented as a change in the underlying policy approach of the FOMC. He repeats virtually the same message at the press conference, picked up in the press as well. Yellen says the same thing in January. But this is very consistent with the approach he took at his nomination hearings for his nomination as chair in November of 2005. And the drama of these hearings was set up by him being a known inflation advocate, but then ranking member, Democrat Paul Sarbanes of Maryland, proponent of the employment mandate. 
How is Bernanke going to finesse this? His approach at that hearing was to basically say an inflation target would not mean any change in the way the Fed does business. Um, make more important, the step would in no way reduce the importance of maximum employment as a policy goal. And in Q&A, he describes adopting an inflation target as a modest bit of additional transparency. I think the implications of continuity are strong. Uh, it was obviously motivated by a desire to mollify um, the uh, defenders of the employment mandate who feared that adopting an inflation target would make policy more focused on, more concerned about inflation, and less concerned about employment. The strong emphasis on continuity of policy may have sharply limited the effectiveness of the statement. The message to market participants essentially was not a regime change, not a consequential commitment of any type, no need to alter expectations. Whatever you thought the reaction function of the Fed was before, you can still believe that now. So in such a situation, with such an, a rollout, it's not clear that that announcement has much of a chance of improving the anchoring of inflation expectations. And it's beyond my scope in this paper to do a statistical analysis, but if you just eyeball measures of inflation expectations, it's, it's not obvious they change at all in their behavior around the time of the, the first release of this um, consensus statement. To the extent the FOMC currently views expected inflation as uh, insufficiently anchored, I think this is something they ought to take on board in their review. Another reason the consensus statement might not have left a discernible trace on the behavior of inflation expectations is the way in which the statement handled the employment mandate. It's a long passage. I've broken it up into two different slides. Here's the first half. Uh, the maximum level of employment is largely determined by non-monetary factors that affect the structure and dynamics of the labor market. These factors may change over time and may not be directly measurable. As a consequence, it would be not be appropriate, it would not be appropriate to fix to specify a fixed goal for employment. Rather, the committee's policy decisions must be informed by assessments of the maximum level of employment, recognizing that such assessments are necessarily uncertain and subject to revision. All well and good. So maximum employment is a latent variable driven by real factors, and it would not be appropriate to set a goal, a fixed goal. On the other hand, that leaves open this, the idea of maybe a variable goal could be set. We'll see. So there's two interpretations, natural interpretations, I might say, of maximum employment. Uh, one emerges from the standard class of theoretical and empirical models that we use these days to evaluate monetary policy. Uh, in it, the natural rate of um, employment corresponds to the level of employment that would occur in an equilibrium with flexible prices and wages, but given all current real disturbances to the economy. This is what Friedman described in 68 and what Michael Woodford has emphasized, derived, in fact, in his book and other articles. This is the level that is relevant to welfare maximizing policy in standard models. That is to say, the gap between employment, actual employment, and this reference natural rate of employment, that's the right thing for policy to respond to in these models. In principle, it exhibits substantial fluctuations. So for example, in 2010, 2011, after all of the real shocks that gave us the Great Recession, maximum employment surely involved a higher unemployment rate than it does now. And that's just simply an artifact of the, the, the effect of these real shocks on uh, the, the uh, uh, equilibrium uh, with flexible wages and prices. Alternatively, the text is open to interpretation under an older macroeconomic tradition 
that draws one to thinking of maximum employment uh, in terms of what's called uh, the NARU, non-accelerating rate of inflation. Uh, this uh, macroeconomic tradition dates to before the time period in which we began using models based on households and the, their optimization problem and choice, their individual choice and the free choice of firms uh, interacting in marketplace. It's from a tradition that started analysis with the primitive building blocks of supply and demand curves and worked up from there. As a result, this concept is ad hoc. It has no clear relationship to uh, welfare, household welfare, or optimal policy. It's very smooth over time by assumption, by construction, in fact, uh, and it's assumed to vary only in response to demographic shifts and the like. The text that I've uh, shown you so far and what I'm going to show you on the next slide is consistent with both of these interpretations. Here's the rest of the consensus statement. Uh, it says the committee considers a wide range of indicators in making these assessments, that is assessments of maximum employment, uh, information about committee participants' estimates of the longer run normal rates of output growth and unemployment is published four times a year in the SEP, most recently 4.4%. Uh, note here that it does not equate maximum employment with longer run normal rates of output and uh, unemployment. Uh, equating the two would be inconsistent with the natural rate idea because the longer run is a time period in which the shocks have played out. Uh, but it would be perfectly consistent, in fact, quite felicitous uh, for proponents of the ad hoc Nehru interpretation of, mac of maximum employment. It, you can see, though, it's very easy for a reader to be confused about whether the Fed is equating the two or not. Notice also that this, including the numerical value for median SEP projections um, suggests that the committee's unemployment rate goal, a variable goal, uh, is 4.4%, that that number is the Fed, but it, it doesn't say that that's the Fed's unemployment rate goal. So the statement manages to have its cake and eat it too. And this drafting, to me, looking back, clearly this drafting was necessary to get broad consensus support among the committee, um, but uh, my sense is that it's left an unfortunate, confusing muddle uh, for this passage. So um, before I close, let me share a couple thoughts about the current strategic review. Um, obviously, I think uh, the employment mandate deserves some attention. The committee came to a meeting of minds about the inflation target and agreed on 2%. They need to come to a meeting of minds about the relationship between employment and monetary policy. Um, and I think it'll, the employment mandate is going to continue to trouble the Fed until it delves deeper into what it thinks. A uh, couple obvious ob observations. First. Throughout the deliberations, more people preferred a target range than a point target. The point target was adopted to provide more stimulus. Uh, views shifted towards a point target to provide more stimulus at a time where the lower range would have encompassed the existing inflation rate. Um, a second observation, uh, third observation has to do with opportunism and uh, makeup strategies. I'll, I'll just skip that in the interest of time. Looking back on the consensus statement, um, I've focused on the shortcomings, um, but I'd like to end on a little bit more positive note. Uh, it culminated a broad array of uh, improvements to Fed transparency that have been alluded to a couple of times already. Um, this really was the keystone uh, 
transparency element, the thing that the last final piece of the puzzle needed to complete this array of things. I think it's a, a, a great achievement um, what that, that trans, those transparency efforts have, have accomplished and uh, I'm proud of having been a part of that. Um, sure, the consensus statement was delayed for years by uh, reluctance to sacrifice discretion and resistance to downgrading the FOMC's perceived focus on the employment mandate. And it's disappointing um, in some respects, as I've described, but it finally articulated and explained the Fed's inflation target. The question for the Fed going forward in this framework review is can a stronger framework under the, be built under the existing current legislative mandate? I used to think so. I used to think that the Volcker-Greenspan formulation, that price stability is the best contribution monetary policy can make to maximum employment, should be a compelling argument and should be uh, something that can carry a day, as it did in the 80s and 90s. Um, but I'm, I'm less sanguine so, uh, right now after having conducted this review. Thank you. everyone. Um, my name is Carol Binder. It's a pleasure to be here, my first time at the Cato Institute. So I'd like to open today by presenting a quote from Ben Bernanke's memoir, um, The Courage to Act. He was talking about the November 2011 FOMC meeting and said that we considered the theoretical benefits of NGDP targeting, but also whether it was desirable or even feasible to switch to a new framework at that time. And he, he notes that he had been intrigued by the approach but came to share his colleagues' reservations about introducing it at that time. And I've put in bold the phrase at that time because what I'd like to talk about today is whether the timing might be better now, eight years later. And in thinking about whether the timing might be better now, um, let me first show you just what uh, such, a, such a policy might look like. So I've plotted um, the log of nominal GDP for the US from 2006 to the present. That's the green line. And then the orange dashed line shows a 4% growth path since 2012. So if the Fed in November 2011 had adopted nominal GDP level targeting, they would have kept nominal GDP along that orange dashed line, which is approximately what they've done. Um, there's also another dashed line that's a 4% growth path since 2015, and it perfectly lines up with the, with the other dashed line because the Fed has stayed along that same growth path. So... One, um, so if the Fed were to adopt NGDP targeting now, the change might be minimally disruptive because they could argue that they were merely formalizing an approach that they had been following for the last decade. Another reason um, why the, they might consider such a change is that the popular will to defend the monetary policy status quo is, is quite weak. Um, in general, central banks are unpopular by design. So if you think of Rogoff 1985, we delegate monetary policy to an independent and conservative central banker, where conservative here is in the sense of being more inflation-averse than the government or than the public. And we do this so that the central bank will pr 
pursue policies that are politically unpopular in the short run, but with long-term benefits. But no matter what those long-term benefits are, the central bank is going to be unpopular in the short run. That's by design. And this unpopularity is exacerbated by what Andy Haldane has called the twin deficits of understanding and trust in central banks. And a lot of my own research focuses on documenting these so that the American public just doesn't really understand what the Fed does and doesn't really trust the Fed. And others have shown similarly for um, the Bank of England, the ECB, and other um, peers of the Fed. Um, so... Um, we often, in central banking circles, talk about central bank credibility, but not so much about central bank popularity. But central bank popularity, um, I would argue, does matter. And the reason it matters is because politicians can change the bank's mandate, target, or governance, or undermine the central bank's pursuit of its objectives. And politicians will be especially tempted to do so when populist sentiment is strong, as it is now. Um, on the left, I'm showing you a headline from The Economist. It says, the independence of central banks is under threat from politics. And they were especially referring to being under threat from populist politics. There's a lot of anecdotal evidence of this, but I've also recently um, undertaken a very labor-intensive data collection effort to construct a new data set about political pressure on 118 central banks. So with the help of two... Um, amazing Haverford College undergrads, it's Maya Ahmed and Russell Gerard. Um, we read through the Economist Intelligence Unit and Business Monitor International's country-level quarterly reports from 2010 to the present for basically every country and um, recorded details about all cases of recorded political pressure on or political interference with central banks. Um, and we found that political pressure on central banks is quite prevalent. It's, um, we found it for 39% of those 118 central banks, um, including banks with uh, high levels of legal independence. But we also found that it was more than twice as likely for central banks in countries with populist leaders compared to central banks in countries without populist leaders. So I'd like to talk a little bit about um, an interesting case study, the Reserve Bank of New Zealand. As you probably know, the Reserve Bank of New Zealand was the first official inflation targeter um, because the Reserve Act of 1989 gave the Reserve Bank operational independence and a mandate to provide stability in the general level of prices. Um, the way it works there is that there's a policy targets agreement between the governor and the minister of finance that's renegotiated every time a governor is appointed or reappointed. And the first policy targets agreement set the inflation target to be CPI inflation in a range of 0 to 2 percent. There were some important electoral system reforms in New Zealand in 1996 that changed the electoral system from a first-past-the-post system to a mixed-member proportional system. And what that meant was that um, the, the major parties needed to form coalitions with smaller parties to govern. So in 96, the National Party remained in power um, by forming a coalition with New Zealand First, which is typically described as a populist party, and its leader, Winston Peters, had campaigned on reforming the Reserve Bank and in particular was not a fan of the inflation target. So that policy target agreement that year widened the target. It was 0 to 2%. They widened it to 0 to 3%, and they sort of de-emphasized the importance of price stability as an objective. And then over the years, um, 
throughout various different coalition governments, there was a continued trend toward more flexibility in the inflation target, greater tolerance of inflation variability. And this occurred under various coalition governments, but Winston Peters was, was quite influential in all of this. And that process culminated in the 2018 amendments to the Reserve Act. So in the 2017 election, the Labour Party regained power through a coalition with New Zealand First, and the coalition agreement included a commitment to reform the Reserve Bank of New Zealand. What these reforms included were a dual mandate and a change um, from monetary policy by a single governor to committee-based policy. But, so this is actually really big news in central banking. The first inflation targeter has abandoned inflation targeting in favor of a dual mandate. So after the fact, the Reserve Bank um, Governor, Adrian Orr, has commented that institutions must adapt in keeping with shifting political, economic, environmental, and social realities to serve the well-being of the people. It is from the people that institutions derive their social license to operate, their legitimacy. And I agree with his statement. I agree with this sentiment. But I also recognize that this institutional evolution at the Reserve Bank was not internally driven. It wasn't guided by what the central bankers thought would be best for the best way for them to serve the people. It was imposed on them from the outside. It was externally imposed by the politicians. As Judith Collins, who's a member of parliament in the National Party, the party that opposed this legislation, says, this has been a policy of the Green Party. It's been a policy of New Zealand First. It's been a policy of the Labor Party. And she says, we are concerned at the say mission creep because they've abandoned the single objective in favor of a dual mandate. And the, I mean, this change has only just gone into effect, so it's still far too early to say what the economic consequences will be for New Zealand. But I just think that for other central banks, the lesson to take from this might be that you know, change might come whether they like it or not. And, and would it be more effective to drive that change internally rather than wait for it to be imposed by the political system? Um, so Kenneth Rogoff has, has made a, a similar remark. He says, to shield monetary policy from the populace of the left and the right, central bankers cannot afford to rest on their laurels. And I think the New Zealand case study makes that case. Change might be coming whether the central banks like it or not. So if the FOMC really does think that there are theoretical benefits to NGDP targeting, like they thought in 2011, um, the time to act on that might be pretty soon. And if you remember um, Bernanke's statement that I showed you at the beginning, the second part of his comment was that nominal GDP targeting is complicated and would be very difficult to communicate to the public, as well as to Congress, which would have to be consulted. A lot of my research also focuses on central bank communication, which I agree just that in general, central bank communication is difficult. But I actually think that communicating um, about nominal GDP targeting could be easier than what the Fed is doing now. So um, the headline I'm showing you here, it says, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is making monetary policy cool and political again. And I know in this audience we all agree that monetary policy has always been cool and political, <laughs> but um, what this article was referring to was Chairman Powell's July congressional testimony. And the congresswoman was asking him about the Fed's um, estimates of maximum, maximum unemployment, 
asking him about the Fed's estimates of like what we would call U-star. Um, she was referring to it as like maximum employment, but the estimates of U-star had been falling over time. The numbers that she was giving were the same numbers that Jeffrey Lacker was talking about. It's the projections of U-star from the summary of economic projections, which again, politicians aren't exactly clear on how to interpret those, but um, they had been falling over time. Unemployment was below those estimates of U-star, but inflation was still below target. And so she was, um, this made her question fundamentally the model that the Fed uses to make its policy and was really leading her to doubt the credibility of the Fed's approach to monetary policy. You can kind of see that here, so the, the graph on the bottom right, um, the dashed orange line is the midpoint of the summary of economic projections for longer-run unemployment. And Bernanke has said that you can interpret that as uh, the Fed's estimates of U-star. You see that that's fallen over time. Unemployment is below it. And PCE inflation has generally been below the 2% target. So that you can understand why this is complicated to communicate to a congressperson. But again, at the top, I've just um, replicated the, the figure that I showed you at the beginning, which shows um, log and GDP growing steadily along a 4% growth path. And that's a little easier to communicate. And um, we're in a really good economy right now, but the bottom two panels make it seem like the Fed is failing. The top panel makes it seem like the Fed is succeeding, which I think the Fed is succeeding. Um, so in addition to improving communication with, Congre with Congress, um, NGDP targeting might also be easier to communicate with uh, the private sector. And in another paper, I used data from the Philadelphia Fed's survey of professional forecasters. And I, what I am plotting here is the share of those forecasters who say that they use U-Star to make their forecasts. And that share has fallen to an all-time low. It's less than a third of forecasters even use the natural rate of unemployment to forecast at all. So they no longer use this concept, which is so um, crucial to the Fed's approach to monetary policy, which the Fed communicates, but then they don't use it. They might find more, more credible or at least easier to understand an approach that has a, an informational advantage and in that it doesn't rely on estimating U-star, which we know is estimated with, with very large confidence intervals, which very uncertain and a lot of disagreement about it. Um, in GDP targeting could also be easier for just households and consumers to understand. In GDP targeting implies countercyclical inflation by construction. So when real GDP growth is lower, inflation is higher and vice versa. And in some studies of household survey data, um, I've shown that this is how a lot of households seem to model the economy. This is their intuition of how the economy works. When they're reporting their inflation expectations on surveys, what they're doing is giving a high number if they think the economy is bad and a low number if they think the economy is good because they just don't really understand what inflation is. And I think they would also have an easier time thinking about nominal income than they would thinking about inflation. So to conclude, I think that the popular and political will to defend the monetary policy status quo is weak, and that recognizing that change is coming, central banks might be wise to take matters into their own hands. Um, I also think that there, the informational advantage to NGDP-level targeting, which is that 
um, it doesn't rely on estimates of U-star is especially strong now because of the um, uncertainty about, about what U-star is. And um, as the two other panelists so far have also discussed, uh, the political climate heightens the benefits of a single target. I've talked about in GDP targeting, they've talked about inflation targeting, but, but the idea is the same, that um, having a single explicit target um, not only makes things easier for people to understand, but improves accountability and transparency and reduces some of the room for political pressure on central banks. Thank you. Well, first of all, I want to thank Jim Dorn and the members of the Cato Institute for putting together a really great program today and for thinking of including me. It's a great pleasure to be here. I should also say it's nice to come to the comparatively tropical climate of DC. Uh, my uh, Uber driver last night was complaining about the bitter cold and I wasn't particularly sympathetic. It was six degrees when I woke up yesterday in South Bend, so it felt kind of balmy here. Um, Anyway, so the, the topic of my remarks this morning is sort of taking off from some things that Rich Claret has said earlier, and that's that I think there's a reality that we're living in a world now of low neutral or natural interest rates, whatever your preferred uh, uh, naming of that is, and that increases the likelihood that we're going to have to deal with the zero lower bound or the effective lower bound, if you will, in the future. And the question for central bankers is how ought we to do that and ought we to consider uh, relatively more controversial and wide-ranging changes relative to the framework we've been operating in. So as motivation, this is a picture. You've heard this claim that our star or the neutral rate has been declining. This is a way to visualize that. This is an estimate from a paper by Laubach and Williams, which dates back to 2003. But the estimate of our star is continually updated. You can download these data off of the New York Fed website. And a couple of things are important to note here. First, the neutral rate is very low. It's hovering down near 0%. Secondly, it declined substantially in the wake of the global financial crisis and ensuing Great Recession. But third, this is part of a longer secular trend, right? So I think that for a lot of different reasons, I think it's, it's, it's appropriate to conclude that this is a reality that we have to contend with. Why do we have to contend with it? And a lot of the models that we like to work with and the models that are popular at central banks Optimal monetary policy involves moving policy rates to match the natural rate. Well, if the natural rate is really low, this doesn't give us much room. And if we can't go far below zero, this doesn't give much room to cut rates during a recession. And so what do we do? So taking is given that the zero lower bound or the effective lower bound is going to be more likely to be a problem in the future, what ought we to do? I suppose one option is nothing. I think there's a consensus that this is potentially costly. There's a nice review paper by Kylie and Roberts, for example, that quantifies and discusses the costs of the zero lower bound or the effective lower bound in sort of canonical macro models that we work with. A second alternative is to implement unconventional policies, what were considered unconventional policies at the time they were first rolled out, but which perhaps might become more conventional and standard as we move forward. And here, principally in the United States, I'm thinking about quantitative easing or, or asset purchases and forward guidance, which I'll abbreviate via QE and FG. 
An alternative, which a lot of folks have, have proposed, is to consider what I would consider more drastic changes uh, in the framework so as to reduce the incidence and or cost of a binding effective lower bound in the future, taking as given that R star is low. And so two popular proposals are, on the one hand, to raise the inflation target. This would sort of, if you will, give more space to cut rates if nominal rates fluctuated about a higher mean. And an alternative, which has been implemented at least to some extent um, throughout the rest of the world, is dabbling with negative interest rates. And a fourth thing, which doesn't appear on this slide, but which I think is important to say and which I think dovetails nicely with what the other panelists have mentioned, is that I think that particularly in a world where uh, neutral rates are very low and it's increasingly likely that central banks both here at home as well as in other countries are going to have to experiment with different and potentially new instruments going forward, that it's increasingly more important to have well-articulated objectives and goals in terms of things that are easy to understand. So Peter Ireland talked about uh, strengthening the Fed's inflation target. Carola Bender talked about um, nominal GDP targeting, of which I happen to be a fan and have done some work on in the past. Um, but I think the articulation of clear policy objectives is ever more important now than it has been, given the reality that we're likely to have to contend with the ZLB in the future. So by way of brief review of some of the Fed's unconventional actions in the wake of the crisis, here is a summary statistic for asset purchases I plot uh, the Fed's balance sheet measured in trillions of dollars on the left axis. Left axis. Uh, the shaded blue regions are periods of active QE purchases. Prior to the crisis, the balance sheet was under $1 trillion. Uh, over the course of QE1, that initial big spike, a lot of that is sort of the emergency lending facilities that were opened up and not QE1 per se. Uh, the balance sheet approached uh, close to $2 trillion. QE1 involved the purchase of agency-backed mortgage-backed securities. QE2 was announced shortly thereafter, and then QE3 later on in 2013, continuing through 2015. All told, these actions increased the size of the Fed's balance sheet by over a factor of four, from under one trillion to, to over four and a half trillion. There's since been some rundown. In terms of forward guidance, what I would consider to be the other principle means that the Fed uh, implemented unconventional policy. This has been touched on by some of our other speakers. The Fed implicitly at least has used some form of forward guidance for some time, issuing statements and talking about how it intends to conduct policy in the future. This became ever more important when policy rates began to be constrained by the zero lower bound and consequently the Fed began using stronger language about the intended path of its target rate, beginning early on using sort of amorphous terminology like sometime or an extended time as Jeff pointed out, later moving to uh, calendar-based forward guidance, announcing dates by which they intended to keep the funds rate low for some time. And then uh, towards the end of this cycle, moving to what is sometimes referred to as target-based forward guidance, where they would announce explicit targets for the unemployment rate and or the inflation rate. And by the way, there's been some discussion about so-called makeup policies thus far, and I would consider makeup policies sort of under the umbrella of forward guidance. You're promising to do something at some point in the future. And so uh, th this, what I'm labeling as FG, encompasses makeup policies. As a summary statistic for what these unconventional policies did or did not do, uh, there's a nice literature to which my colleague and co-author Cynthia Wu has contributed, which constructs a so-called shadow federal funds rate. And the basic idea of the shadow federal funds rate is to take reduced form term structure models and to infer a hypothetical time path of short-term policy rates given the behavior 
of yields out on the long end of a yield curve. And Cynthia and her work uh, with uh, uh, GIA, published in the JMCB in 2016, constructs a very popular shadow rate series. You can download this from a number of different sources now. And uh, their shadow rate series goes quite negative, reaching a nadir of close to 300 basis points below zero uh, during the middle of QE2. Okay, that is suggestive. It's, of course, not dispositive, but it is nevertheless suggestive that some of the Fed's unconventional actions were providing stimulus perhaps similar to what would have happened had the policy rate been cut by 300 basis points below zero. Okay. Now, a downside of that work is it's not based on economic models. It's based on a term structure model, and we can just infer this from the data. So Cynthia and I have done some work over the last year where we have developed uh, this particular figure is taken from a sort of simplified version of a more complicated model where we build in constrained financial intermediaries, a, a rudimentary term structure, and this setup uh, stays as close as possible to kind of the benchmark three equation New Keynesian model that a lot of us like to use in the back of our minds to gain intuition uh, for how the Fed ought to conduct policy and for how policymakers think about things. But it adds a fourth equation and allows for balance sheet policies to matter. And so we developed this model. We call it uh, somewhat embarrassingly the four equation New Keynesian model. And uh, we can do an exercise where we take data on the size of the Fed's balance sheet and sort of construct this conversion factor at the zero lower bound between what the balance sheet policies did and what our model would predict the equivalent policy rate change would have been. And the dashed line in this figure is showing the empirical shadow rate constructed completely independently of this model. The solid line is showing what we call the, the model implied shadow rate given the observed behavior of the Fed's balance sheet. And it, it, it looks, I think, pretty encouraging. I think this is kind of a good picture in the sense that it shows that balance sheet policies did have some effect, don't account for all of the decline in the observed empirical shadow rate. I think that's a good thing because we're not, for example, capturing things like forward guidance here. Uh, so it everywhere lies above this, but it nevertheless suggests in the context of this relatively simple model that represents at some level kind of an epsilon deviation from the standard benchmark, uh, it, it, it represents a fairly successful or uh, sanguine viewpoint on the effects of balance sheet policies. So sort of where are my policy thoughts coming back to the question of how we should deal with a world of low rates? I'm of the opinion, and I'll be perfectly frank here, that macroeconomists don't agree about much, as you might have gathered, and I think that's with good reason. Aggregate data are really messy. We don't have clean natural experiments, um, and so it's hard to reach firm conclusions. I think that the data suggests that unconventional policy have been relative, unconventional policies, excuse me, have been relatively effective substitute for conventional policy rate movements during the zero lower bound period from 2008 to the end of 2015 in the United States. Note, I'm not saying a perfect substitute. I think a reasonably effective substitute. And I think a consensus opinion would be that there is some substitutability here. I think there would be more disagreement among macroeconomists concerning just how substitutable. I cite some papers here that look empirically at the effects of things like balance sheet policies. There's a whole other literature looking at forward guidance policies. I also think, and it's obligatory in these kind of talks to do some shameless self-citation, I also think that uh, 
these sort of conclusions are consistent with an empirical literature that's not looking at the effectiveness of unconventional policies per se, but is looking at, for example, predictions of standard models when policy is constrained by the zero lower bound, and by and large finds that you know, the world doesn't look that different from 2008 to 2015 in terms of how the economy reacted to shocks than it did prior to 2008, and that's consistent with unconventional policies uh, sort of having effects similar to the conventional operating framework in place prior to that. So I want to return to uh, two options that I mentioned at the beginning, uh, calls for a higher inflation target and or calls for changes that would allow us to implement significantly negative interest rates. So for example, lots of folks have done this. I cite Larry Ball here have called for a higher inflation target. The basic idea is if instead of targeting 2%, you go to 4%, you've got 200 basis points more room to cut in a downturn in terms of moving the nominal interest rate. There have also been policy calls, and in particular here I'm citing Ken Rogoff, who has been a loud proponent of this, although other folks have joined in the chorus, uh, to enable deeply negative interest rates, which would in essence just make the zero lower bound or the effective lower bound irrelevant. So as a question for us to think about, and a question I think that folks in central banks ought to be thinking about, is should we do one or both of these? And against the backdrop of thinking about, we've done and implemented unconventional policies like QE and forward guidance, and I would argue have had some success with those. I would argue that negative rates don't seem to be working out all that well. There's some indication, for example, that members of the ECB want to move away from them. They're certainly not politically popular in certain circles. Uh, there are sort of theoretical reasons to think about why conventional pass-through might break down when you move into negative territory. Folks like Gaudi Egertsen and Larry Summers have emphasized sort of a negative effect on banks' bottom lines. I again discussed some of this in my broader paper with Cynthia. Mauricio Ulate, uh, who was on the job market from Berkeley last year, has a paper highlighting a similar mechanism. There's also potential distributional issues associated with negative interest rates. And something that's somewhat more harder to capture in a formal macroeconomic model, but which I think is relevant for thinking about the world today, is sort of this concept of reach for yield and bubbles. We live in a world where I can't get a, a reasonable return on something relatively safe. This is perhaps moving people into riskier stuff. And I think that the events of a decade ago have convinced us that that's probably not such a good idea. In terms of raising the inflation target, Let's put aside the issue of whether 4% is costly rather than 2%. I think that it is, but let's put that aside. I think practically this would be extraordinarily difficult to implement, particularly right now. Sort of the puzzling thing in macroeconomics and central banking circles today is why is inflation so low? And we don't seem to have a particularly good rationale for that. Rich talked about sort of the apparent breakdown of the Phillips curve. Bob Hall has claimed that inflation follows an exogenous process. I can write down a model in which I snap my fingers and we move to a 4% inflation target and everybody believes that and this might have some beneficial effects. I think that ignores some realities that are present in the real world. And so I think that would be difficult. And I think that it's easy for us to forget how costly high inflation was in the 1970s. I wasn't really around to experience that. Some folks in the room were. But I think we learned from that experience that it is costly, and it's costly to transition. Moving from a high inflation to a low inflation regime, I think going in the opposite direction would entail some costs. So in conclusion, um, I'm of the opinion that I think that sort of the Fed's unconventional policies that it implemented in the wake of the crisis were reasonably effective, uh, not a perfect substitute for their conventional policy actions, but reasonably effective. I think that there's a lot of potential downside and uncertainties associated with 
implementing changes such as the near abolition of cash, for example, uh, that would make negative interest rates dangerous, and I think a higher inflation target is hard to implement in practice. Taking RSTAR as given, I think that the framework that we should think about using in the future to deal with the zero lower bound is to do what we did last time. I think we have a better understanding of how it works. Um, and I think that I'm reasonably confident that it will be successful the next time. And of course, and this is where I'll end, I'm 10 seconds over, but I think we're running ahead of schedule, so I'll take 30 extra seconds. Perhaps we shouldn't take the low R star as given, right? Um, and it's certainly the case that a low R star is relevant for the conduct of monetary policy. It's a relevant input for us to think about these things. I don't think that R star is a target for monetary policy. And there's a, lot of, there's a lot of discussion of late about sort of an expanding the central bank's mandate. For example, there was a conference at the San Francisco Fed last week about climate change and macroeconomics. Uh, there's been a lot of discussion about should central banks be concerned about inequality and what have you. I think inequality, climate change are all relevant considerations because they're relevant for thinking about the monetary transmission mechanism. They're potentially relevant for our star. But turning back to something I said earlier, I don't think that these are appropriate targets for monetary policy per se. And I think that it's dangerous from the perspective of central bank independence for us to think about expanding these uh, uh, to be targets. And I think focusing on price stability in particular is the way that we should go. So thank you very much. Thank you very much. Um, in a moment, open up uh, the floor to questions from the audience, and I'll, I'll get the ball rolling if you can all start to think about your own questions. I'd like to get the ball rolling. Uh, perhaps start with you, Carolyn, and, and ask others to chime in. Um, when it comes to the, your proposal regarding nominal GDP targeting, or indeed any, um, anything that could be grouped into the category of makeup strategies, is it fair to raise the questions about the risks associated with undertaking something that is arguably untested in the largest economy in, in the world and think about, uh, in particular, um, the challenges in terms of moving expectations that I think some of these proposals rely on uh, in an environment where um, not a lot of people are paying on the street, are paying that close attention to the level of inflation or even know what the level of inflation is? And how does that affect your thinking about NGP targeting? Um, certainly it's, it's fair to um, have concerns about implementing an untested um, policy approach. Um, the, the point you raise about people on the street paying attention to monetary policy or not, um, I think that actually strengthens the potential benefits of NGDP targeting because if we if we just keep nominal income growing stable or or really inflation stable like ideally people just don't have to pay attention to what the central bank is doing that's why we either want low and stable inflation or low and stable nominal or not necessarily low but stable nominal income growth um, stability a big benefit of it is that people then don't have to allocate their attention to the Fed or to, you know, reading about economic statistics. If we're in a volatile environment, then people do have to pay attention to those things and they don't seem to like paying attention to those things. So better if they can um, kind of safely ignore them without uh, that being too costly for them. 
Anybody else on the panel want to jump in that subject or shall we move straight to the audience? Okay. Um, just a quick uh, thing, if you can wait for the microphone. If, uh, second, tell us who you are and if you could kindly state your question in the form of a question. Uh, <laughs> right here in the, in the second row. Here we go. Thank you. Hi, I'm David Beckworth. This is for Eric. So Eric, on the, uh, the question of QE and large-scale asset purchases, um, you, you, you articulate well that it's a substitute for lowering the federal funds rate. There's a lot of evidence, I think you could call almost a consensus, although some would disagree with that, but there's a lot of literature showing that it did lower the cumulative effect somewhere around 100 basis points in the 10-year Treasury. So let's take that as a given. In my reading of the literature, it seems less clear what effect it's had on the real economy or a broader effect. Do you think that's a fair critique? And if so, then what use is, is QE providing us? Um, yeah, absolutely. I think that's a fair critique. As I mentioned earlier, um, answering questions empirically in macro is difficult. Uh, and so there's a lot of moving parts. There's a lot of simultaneity. And so there's still a lot of uncertainty about this. Um, to my mind, some of the most compelling evidence is not from some of these studies that you mentioned for per se, which suggest roughly on the order of 100 basis point movement in the 10-year Treasury, but the fact that a lot of the predictions that were made from the basis of standard New Keynesian models at the zero lower bound didn't come to predict, didn't come to fruition. You know, we didn't have examples of contractionary positive supply shocks. We didn't seem to be particularly volatile the way that we would be in the context of a simple New Keynesian model, et cetera, et cetera. And so I think that is suggestive that whatever the Fed was doing, and again, it was a mixed match of different things. There were different kinds of QE. We could talk about the details, whether you're buying treasuries, whether you're buying agency-backed, mortgage-backed securities, uh, different kinds of forward guidance. There was a lot of stuff going on, so there's many moving parts there. But I think the evidence is relatively compelling that what they were doing did something uh, and made things better. I think that one thing we need to consider going forward to the future is not only are neutral rates really low, long-term rates are really low in a lot of the world. And this, I think, uh, poses a particular problem because the standard way that we think about QE or asset purchases is working is by sort of moving down yields further out on the yield curve or further, further out on the risk structure that are potentially more relevant for private expenditure. Um, when we're moving into a world where 10-year yields and 15-year yields are getting very close to zero, that doesn't give us a lot of space there. And sort of this ties into the question of the problem with low R star. And so if we move into a world where long-term interest rates are very close to zero or very close to whatever their effective lower bound might be, I think that that certainly inhibits the ability to use asset-type purchases to be successful. Right here in the front. Uh, Charles Calamiris. Um, I wanted to direct a question to Eric about uh, this new four equation model. And I guess I'm, my question could be interpreted as maybe you need a fifth equation. Um, and uh, that is that from the perspective of uh, John Taylor, Alan Meltzer, and my own research on QE, what we think, uh, I can speak for all of them, is that the exchange rate was a very important uh, part of how QE operated. Now, it's much more complicated to explain why the uh, QE was able to have persistent effects on the exchange rate, which suggests a fairly complicated story, which I won't go into now, about how QE 
policy, not just of the U.S., but other major central banks too, affected perceptions of risk in the market in ways that had long-term effects on currencies, and they were quite large. And so I, I think that um, putting everything into the interest rate box and trying to understand QE from that perspective, I think, is, is kind of difficult. Yeah, I don't disagree. And so what we were setting out to do in that particular paper that I mentioned is to kind of stay as close as possible to Woodford's book in some sense, stay as close as possible to the three-equation model. There's no open economy uh, sector there, so we can't speak to exchange rate mechanisms, although I agree that particularly now and particularly in an increasingly globalized world, this is important to think about. Um, and in particular, also thinking about global financial flows, too, I think is something worth thinking about. So. I think your point is well taken that we should think more about exchange rate effects. Um, that's not something I can speak to right now. Let's go over here and then up to the back after that. Good morning, Bruce Fox with Genworth. A lot of talk about the zero lower bound and uh, ways that we're gonna need to uh, stimulate the economy if growth uh, falls. I'm wondering if we're underestimating some of the negative consequences of lower rates. In other words, I'm wondering if rates should be higher to stimulate growth, uh, some of which uh, Professor Sims has spoken about, savers, the impact on banks in, uh, in Europe, uh, but also insurance, and I think you can also talk about pension plans also getting into troubles. But just in general, I'm just wondering if capitalism needs a higher rate in order to make sure resources are put to their best use, which could help growth. Peter or Jeff? Well, I, I, my, my first answer to you would be, I, it does seem like there are costs associated with particularly negative interest rate policies, and Eric did refer to those, so the point is well taken. Um, it is important, however, to distinguish between real and nominal interest rates. So I agree when you talk about distortions in the financial system, they do seem to be there. But when you talk about um, you know, investment, there the decisions really should be real interest rates, and it would be hard to see how monetary policy um, you know, could do anything about real interest rates in the long run. Um, in the end, however, I'm sympathetic to your, your point, except there's one thing that really, really nags me, and that is the picture that Carola showed showing that PC inflation has been below target for 10 years. T to me, what that suggests is that despite everything, low interest rate policy, QE, forward guidance, somehow monetary policy has provided insufficient accommodation to bring inflation back to 2% in the aftermath of a financial crisis and a severe deflationary recession. But maybe I can close by coming back to your point. Maybe then the thing to do is to think about why these methods, which in theory might have worked, didn't have as big of an impact as they did. And let me just throw out two possibilities. One, quantitative easing was conducted in association with paying interest on reserves. Quantitative easing is a traditional monetary policy action, increases the monetary base. Paying interest on reserves increases the demand for base money and by itself would actually have a deflationary 
impact on the economy. So the rhetorical question would be, why interest on reserves, or at least why interest on reserves at interest rates that are above market rates? And then the second rhetorical question I would ask is, to the extent that we can, as Eric and Carolla's work has suggested, leverage expectational effects, maybe working through nominal GDP level targeting, or maybe through QE and forward guidance. Wouldn't it make sense for the Fed to articulate more clearly a specific monetary policy strategy, a kind of analog to the Taylor rule that they would use the next time the ZLB constraint binds? Maybe we'll see something like this. I guess if I had to say, what's the thing? I admire what the Fed is doing with the Fed listens and the review. What's the thing that's disappointed me so far? I would have liked to have seen more progress along the lines of making what they'll do the next time around more systematic, articulated more clearly in advance. Okay. The gentleman all the way in the back who's been waiting, right, standing up there? Thank you, Pat Kurowski. We just heard the possibility that the QEs translated into 100 basis points, lower treasuries. And uh, Sam even spoke about 300 basis points in some moment of his, uh, of his speech. If we to that add uh, the distortions of monetary policy that are created by the risk-weighted bank capital requirements, are we not confronting a non-transparent tax paid by buyers of treasuries that really uh, disguises the size, underlying size of the fiscal deficits. Jeff, please. As for distortions um, that risk-weighted capital requirements impose, the obvious point to make is that there's an offsetting subsidy in the form of the implied guarantee. It's known by too big to fail, the fact that um, policymakers have been unable to commit not to rescue the investors in large institutions. And I, I you know, whether that matches up or offsets or not, I, you know, I, I don't know. Uh, I, I don't think it's been carefully measured, but um, that would certainly seem to be relevant. Some 60% of financial sector liabilities are explicitly or implicitly guaranteed by the federal government in the United States. Would have been an astounding number, but um, I, I think you'd have to take that into account as well. Okay. Uh, right, straighten back with the hand up there. We've been waiting a bit. In the middle, right there. Hi, Minervon, U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics. If Congress uh, strips the Fed of its dual mandate and tells them you have a single mandate, price stability. How does the Fed respond to uh, an economic downturn? Um, I mean, presumably the inflation rate goes down, uh, maybe not. Uh, should the Fed look more into monetary equilibrium where, where the demand for money actually dictates what monetary policy should be? Thank you. It, it, point to make, observation to make is, is that um, Going to a single mandate doesn't mean the Fed sits on its hands no matter what happens in the real side of the economy. 
the interest rate you need to keep, maintain price stability varies with real economic conditions, particularly in a recession in which current resources are relative are abundant relative to future resources. That's a it's a time period in which the real interest rate ought to fall, and so nominal interest rates ought to fall to maintain price stability. This is the point people miss about dropping the employment mandate, um, that it doesn't mean that we, we don't respond. And it's also the point people miss about things like the Taylor curve. Why the Taylor um, uh, rule, why does it work well for the Fed to respond to real things in that? Not because it's an independent argument of a quadratic loss function. It's because the real interest rate you need to maintain price stability varies with the things in that so-called you know, output gap term in uh, the, that rate. And then the other um, point to make about mandates is that it's really a triple mandate. The third one is moderate long-term interest rates. By uh, universal acclaim, it's widely viewed as the best contribution monetary policy can make to moderate long-term interest rates is to keep inflation low and stable, despite the fact that raising rates in the short run raises long-term interest rates. That's the precise relationship between monetary policy and the unemployment rate as well. Uh, over here. Thank you very much. Um, my question is more macroeconomy, and I was, uh, sorry, my name is Angel with fin Hong Kong Phoenix, and uh, my question is that um, as the Federal Reserve cuts interest rate for the third time uh, in 2019 during the U.S.-China trade war time, and how do you see the trade wars having an impact on the labor market in the United States? Thank you. Well, it... it a two-part answer to a two-part question. It, it seems pretty clear from the divergence between the manufacturing sector and the consumer sector in the United States that uncertainties over trade policy, issues associated with a slowdown in the global economy are having an effect on, the, on US economic performance, although Again, highlighting the strength in the consumer sector and in the domestic labor market, enough to slow the rate of GDP growth, but not really threatening to put the U.S. economy into uh, a recession. Now, you also made an indirect or maybe a direct reference to Federal Reserve policy through the, by mentioning the, the rate cuts. And here, too, I would emphasize the point that, that Jeff just made. Um, the... Fed has made, the, and, and Carola made this point as well, I think the Fed has made it unnecessarily complicated for itself by not fully articulating an intermediate term strategy that would make sense of these things. What it looks like is the Fed was raising rates last year because it was confident in the economy and panicked this year or is somehow giving in to political pressure. However, another important difference between late last year and this year is, late last year, it really looked like inflation was going back to 2% and that there was a risk of an overshoot. Against that backdrop, it's perfectly legitimate for the Fed to be raising interest rates. Then we got to 2019, 
And that didn't happen. That's not how the inflation picture unfolded. And against that backdrop, it's equally reasonable for the Fed to say, look, our outlook for inflation has changed. Our interest rate policy must change as well. That would have been much cleaner than what really has happened. Let's take one last one before the break over right here. I really like the. Uh, my name is Daniel Shostakov. I'm from the IMF. Uh, I really like the last point Eric made about uh, our stars and that we shouldn't take them as given. So, as every macroeconomist know, our stars are basically changing double factor productivity plus plus some some other factors. So, my questions to to Eric and to another panelist is. Do you think there is really a room in some optimal policy mix in this uh, change in total factor productivity, which is like slowing down and people are talking about secular stagnation? So do you think there's really a room for structural policy measures or fiscal policy measures to support uh, this uh, uh, productivity slowdown, slow to reverse it and to really give a room for monetary policy? Um, I guess I'll take that. Other folks can chime in. I think, yes, that's absolutely the case. And I could list off a number of structural kind of reforms that I could think that we might implement on the fiscal side of things um, that I'm not confident that would get implemented given the current political climate in which we live. Um, you know, so I think that absolutely we should. I don't think that monetary policy should necessarily be focused on uh, trying to make those things happen, other than the extent to which that gives monetary policymakers more room if our star were to increase. Anybody else? All right, then. Everyone, thank you for your questions, and please join me in thanking this panel.